Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 36th episode. And my name is Nicholas Baird Lumlod, and I'm here with. Uh, with Meta Richard Allen. With Meta Richard Allen. Yes, yes. I Meta Nicholas. I should say that. That's right. Rebranded ourselves. Yes. And uh, speaking about brands, the way brands get known, the way you discover things in the modern economy, the way you, you sort of learn about all of these wonderful things out there is through advertising. Yes. Yet. Advertising seems to be getting a bad rep and increasingly is under fire from all kinds of corners. Uh, walk us through what, what, what should we think about advertising generally? Does it have a value or is it, as more and more people say, an untenable business model? I mean, I think there are very different attitudes across either side of the um, Atlantic. And that was certainly my experience that essentially there are sort of two ways you can see advertising. In one model, you see it as, you know, this evil manipulative process designed to part foolish people from their money for products that they don't want or need, uh, which is a sort of uh, highly negative. That, that attitude actually, I think, is really quite common in Europe. The other way you see it is, actually, as you, you sort of introduced it, um, that it's a way for businesses to connect with customers on products that they do actually want and need. Uh, and therefore, it's like an essential part of keeping the wheels of the economy going. Because again, how else do you find out about new products and services? So I think it's a very um, sort of divided set of opinions, really almost about the, the fundamental ethics of advertising. Is it this manipulative fundamentally you know bad process that we may permit but needs to be very carefully controlled or is it this essential part of the economy that, that we should actually welcome and you know consumers are smart enough to ignore it when it when it's bad advertising and the interesting thing or one interesting thing here is that there is no one who says that they like advertising in all of the public opinion polls that you've made since i think the 1960s around 70 75% people say they dislike advertising it's sort of a stock answer it comes back all the time yet still advertising persists is part of that because it's not Comil for to say you like advertising, even though you sometimes find it useful. Or is advertising one of those things that you don't recognize as advertising when it works? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think those numbers are actually very parallel to to when you ask people if they like politicians. <laughs> 70, 75 percent say no, but but they persist and they're necessary. So we're you know, there are these things in life which which you know yes, your instinctive gut reaction. You know, uh, do you like advertising? No. Do you like privacy? Yes. You know, we're, we're always going to say that, and then you need to dig down a layer and say, but you know, it, uh, do you like this specific type of advertising, or do you, did you find this? A form of advertising useful to you, and uh, and again, individual politicians you may find useful, individual uh, adverts you may find useful, but as a class, you're going to sort of instinctively respond that you dislike them. Um, and yet, you know, if we imagine a world without adverts, you do have to say, and, and no economists look at this, you have to say that you know it would be very different uh, in terms of the economic structure because it would essentially mean that um, you know those people whose products you currently buy, are, uh, you're going to stick with them, and and it's really going to dramatically reduce the opportunity for you to discover any kind of new products that might substitute for the ones that you currently purchase. And so, it really, you know, from if people care about competition and things like this, like you know, trying to imagine a competitive marketplace without advertising, I think, is really challenging. And isn't advertising also one of those um, things that you you don't want to be seen liking them because it's associated with being gullible 
with being right. somebody who's you know easily fooled into buying things they don't need, etc. It's a little bit like the there are a lot of polls on privacy. There's some really good ones, but there are some that essentially ask, "Do you care about privacy?" Where the answer, "I do not care about privacy," is very close to saying, "I'm not an interesting person," or "There's yeah. nothing about me that's worth knowing," or the, you, the sort of the signal value of the response here is to say. I'm not gullible. I don't like advertising. I don't fall for it. You know, I buy my products after careful research and, and deep thought. And I think I think that's that's sort of a that that's a generic problem if you want to defend advertising because seventy five percent of the people will stand up and say they don't like it. So how do you defend it? Yeah, I, I mean, I say from essentially it is that that notion that um, we must have there must be ways for uh, businesses and consumers to connect with each other. And so, if, if you're going to well, either you're going to have a static economy where nothing changes, or you're going to find some method to do that. Uh, and I think you can have advertising within that framework. It, you know, you can model the benefits that it provides to people. Um, and, and on the internet in particular, you know, we have this very uh, sophisticated forms of advertising. We're going to dig into what that actually means. But I would say, look, you know, when I uh, do a search on a popular search engine, the adverts can be as useful as the search results on a good search. They, they can, there could be all sorts of problems. We'll talk about those, but you know, for a typical search. I am both now uh, getting some search results, but I'm also potentially getting some very interesting businesses that are relevant and probably local to me uh, that I otherwise wouldn't have been easily able to find. And so there, the ad, the benefit of the ads is a direct benefit to me as a consumer that it's giving me a, an enhanced choice over the choice I would have had without somebody paying uh, to get in front of me and, and get my attention. So we can like advertising, that's that's uh, quite possible to do, without necessarily being happy about advertising as a business model. We can yes. argue that advertising has a as a function within modern economy, it's a discovery mechanism, but we can also argue that if you fund your services with advertising, something nefarious happens because at that point you're incentivized to find out as much as possible about the people who are um, visiting you or using your services. So so let's go over so we talk about advertising. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about advertising funded business models yeah where that's obviously this doesn't start with the internet right it, it doesn't know and it, and it goes way back when again very interestingly if you look at the history uh, transit uh, the transatlantic history of, of broadcast media in the u.s from the very beginning t- television and radio were funded explicitly by advertisers so, you know companies bought tv programs effectively and bought radio shows and put them out there europe tended to be much more resistant to that and would actually have um in, in many cases state funding so you get state funded broadcasters where you'd find all sorts of ways to do this uh, differently so that debate about you know were those american tv shows and radio shows were those channels beholden to the advertisers and doing things uh, on behalf of those commercial interests were they corrupted by the advertising is as old as the hills and of course with newspapers as well and they talk about the a Chinese wall between the editorial staff and the the staff of newspapers and other magazines that sell the advertising. Again, the notion being that the what you write in a editorialized story uh, in a newspaper should be free of the corruption of trying to please the advertisers who advertise in that newspaper. But again, regularly concerns are raised about that corrosive influence and whether those walls are you know sufficiently robust to stop the piper uh, call, calling the tune as it were he who pays the piper pay, uh, calls the tune 
So, so those concerns are as old as the hills, and then we roll them forward to the internet. And, and with the internet, I think actually it's slightly different in that I think with traditional media, the, the, the suspicion was that, you know, an individual powerful advertiser would corrupt a TV channel or radio station or newspaper. When we get to the internet, it's less about individual advertisers and more about whether the behavior of the internet company is tailored to uh, earning more money from its advertising as a whole. Because they'll, you know, an internet company will have thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of advertisers, whereas a sort of newspaper or TV show, you're talking about tens or hundreds. So we're in a different game now. It's not about any individual advertiser that we worry, you know, that corruption may come from, but that the entire process is somehow corrupted by the need to win more advertising revenue. Let's dig into this because I think you put your finger on something really important. If we were worried before about the influence of advertisers, we're worried now about the influence of advertising, right? That's what you're saying. Yes. And and the influence of advertising then would be that you want to do what? What is it? What is it that you're optimizing for? If you're not pleasing an individual advertiser, how do you how do you optimize for something new in this world of advertising? What is it that you want to have as much of as possible? And in particular, the, the data collection is is the thing that I think people most worry about. And again, interestingly, uh, I think we so here we need to make a bit of a. Mm. Uh, we just need to stop quickly because I think one of the one of the things that you just said needs to be put in context. Because so far we only talked about advertising in general terms, but the reason you collect data is you want to improve on your advertising. <laughs> and so let's talk a little. Let's just start there first before we dig into the data. Yeah. What, so what is it that happens with the internet when you get the possibility to? suddenly improve this product and it gets worse in the public eye <laughs> yeah so, so advertising is basically a, a business well uh, you, where you're monetizing attention certainly in in the form of you know tv radio and the internet in its sort of you know basic form you're saying look i've got a space that people are going to be looking at so people talk about eyeballs there are eyeballs looking at this thing or or listening to this radio show um, I've captured their attention, and so I'm going to divert, uh, whether it's 15 seconds or a split second of their attention, to something which shows off your product or service. And so really, you're paying me for that attention. I've got the attention, I'm selling it on to you. And and in your classic sort of internet 0.5, I don't know if it's even 1.0, but you're a very basic <laughs> internet, you had these things called banner ads, which are as, as described, and, and you still see them actually on, on, you know, sort of some less sophisticated websites where, where you know, you're scrolling through the website and there's just almost like with a TV ad, this thing jumps out and interrupts your experience. Uh, advertising a product and someone has paid to stick that in front of you. So the attention is being monetized. That's really at the heart of all advertising. Now, where the data comes in is that, you know, you've got the attention. It's still the money, the attention you're monetizing. I think people sometimes make, make a mistake here in saying it's the data on its own that's being monetized. It's not. It's primarily about the attention. But what the data can do is allow you to tailor the ad that you place when you've caught someone's attention to a particular product or service. And in doing so, it can significantly increase the value of that attention. So it's still about the split second, but the split second as someone scrolls through a newsfeed or looks at a website is now worth a lot more than it would be if you were just displaying the same banner to every single person who comes to your website. And and to be clear, that value accrues to the advertiser, but also seems to accrue to the consumer whose attention is not wasted, isn't that right? 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and this is proponents of the model will say, and I have actually a lot of sympathy with this argument that look, you know, where this works well, and I say I think Google Search has been held up as a prime example where where Google Search is working well. You you have you know very good value for the uh, advertiser. They're only reaching people. They're paying for the attention of people who are likely to want their product because they just keyed in a search term that is relevant to their product. Um, so they're they're getting very efficiency. They're not blasting their ads to people who don't want them. And yes, from a consumer's point of view, I'm not seeing completely irrelevant ads. You know, you're taking up my time showing me this stuff around the search results. You're not showing me stuff that's completely irrelevant and useless to me. You're showing me stuff that's highly relevant. So in theory, this is a much much better model. Uh, you know, than a model where display ads are being shown to to every single person, irrespective of their interests. Um, where the concerns kick in is look in order. Order to make this happen, you know, you have to know more about the individuals who are viewing the content than you would in a, in a sort of traditional media channel where there's no feedback mechanism or no no way of knowing who is actually looking at the TV screen. So what happens here is that we have advertising that is generally disliked by the public, improving its efficiency enormously as it transitions to the internet. And as a part of that improvement, you collect more data. And what then happens is that there is a worry that that data will be abused in some way to manipulate people. Is that where we're going with this? I, I think both worries apply, but both the sense that almost that the advertising is too powerful. If if you already take the view that advertising is a manipulative practice that I say is designed to part foolish people from from their money, then then you know this is that on steroids um, because it's it's going to be you know targeted very much at individuals who are likely to be susceptible to buy the, the product or service. I mean that's the point of it. So if you don't like advertising, this kind of makes it worse. And then yes, you're worried about all of the data collection that has to take place to fuel this machine. Whether that data collection is is right in principle from just like raw basic privacy principles, which says you shouldn't be collecting data unnecessarily and, you know, that creates risk, um, but also that, you know, it can be manipulated in ways that will be harmful to the individual. So those are all the concerns that people have. And we now ended up with discussing advertising as a phenomenon, but it's still not just one single thing on the internet. If you think about search advertising, for example, it has a high degree of attention efficiency. You search for something, you see an ad, you click it, you're off. But then the argument that you hear more and more often is that there are some services that are designed to not just be attention efficient, but to capture attention over time, because the more attention they capture, the more they can uh, show ads. What's, What's the difference there? Yeah. So, so again, the the assumption is, uh, and and this is very sort of difficult. To, it's a chicken and egg problem. Look, you know, when you run an internet service, what you want is this thing called engagement. In fact, your engagement means people are, are engaging with my service; they're paying attention to it. Um, and obviously, if you're able to convert some of that attention into money, the fear is that you're really optimizing for engagement primarily because you're trying to get more money. Um, again, people have different views on this depending on how much they trust the company. Certainly, my experience is that they would optimize for engagement anyway. So, so you know, you optimize for engagement because as long as your service is growing in terms of you're getting more users and those users are spending more time on it, you feel successful. You're achieving your you know, core mission of building a popular and successful service. Um, that's really your core motivation. Uh, the fact that it makes you money is great. Uh, you know that's a, a huge bonus. But I'm not sure that if you weren't making money, you would, as an internet service, 
you know, stop trying to get more users and more engagement because that's just what you do. But I say that's the that's the theory. The theory of, of the critics is, you know, that if you weren't uh, an advertising funded business model, we can talk about what the alternatives were. But th- their view is, look, if you were not funded by advertising, which necessarily means, you know, getting attention that you are going to monetize you would offer a better service in whatever dimension you think is better. It would be, you know, there'd be less misinformation, there'd be less extreme content because uh, they think the misinformation, extreme content are designed to get more engagement, to get more attention, to get more money. Mm. And so uh, in one sense, you can say that in addition to the fear of manipulation and the fear of locking people in because you want their attention, there's also the question of the alternative cost of this attention not being used elsewhere. When we pour attention into, and this has been a discussion that we've heard around TV and Neil Postman sort of amusing ourselves to death, where the idea has been if we spend attention on entertainment on tv on on different kinds of media or now on on uh, the internet we're not going to spend attention on say our democracy that seems to me to be an interesting argument because there is a scarce amount of attention in society and the way we spend it does seem to have some implication for the kinds of institutions we can build and the quality of democracy we would get how how worried should we be about the general question of if advertising is is taking attention away from other areas and domains in society I mean, again, this is not uh, a, a new concept. And if you look at the um, uh, BBC, it's a sort of prime example where you know, the, the very explicit sort of design philosophy is there to inform, educate, and entertain. And the idea was, we'll give you some fun stuff, but having captured your attention, we'll now you know, force you to, to consume a diet of stuff that's good good for democracy and uh, good for you, some educational and news type stuff. And that, and that philosophy, I think, prevailed throughout a lot of the 20th century, that, that the, the media, you know, one of the roles of the media was almost to to sort of force you to eat your greens, uh, to, to eat your veggies, not just go for your uh, red meat. Um, and then towards the end of the 20th century, m- most markets liberalized. And, and a lot of the debates at the time were precisely along these lines. You had um, Sky come along and Sky was offering, you know, multiple news channels on the satellite in the UK. And, and lots of people criticized them, said this is all just sort of fluffy, you know, entertaining content. It's grabbing people's attention. They're now not paying attention to the worthy stuff that there is on the BBC. But I c- kind of think that battle is settled in the in in favor of there being consumer choice i'm not sure anyone is advocating going all the way back across all our media to the point where we you know we limit choice deliberately to make sure that when when there is a tv channel it's it's got the veggies as well as the meat um uh, i think we're now in a world where that consumer choice is real um but but interesting yes in the debates around things like facebook I think both externally and actually internally to Facebook, um, there there is debate now almost of going back to a BBC type model for within that specific service. It's saying, look, as a big service, you know, uh, during COVID, you know, shall we make sure that uh, all of our users consume a certain amount of proper healthy COVID information? Uh, in a sense, to balance out the risk that they may be getting any unhealthy or, or inappropriate COVID information. 
which seems to to have another risk associated with it, which is the risk of of the corporate paternalism, because at that point the corporation decides what veggies are. Now, veggies is a sort of misleading metaphor because we know what veggies are; they're like they're easily identifiable. But in this case, you are not uh, providing people with veggies; you're providing them with information that you think is accurate, correct, that is in some way high quality, and that that then becomes the the response to this accusation of social distraction that that we hear from some. Uh, some people who are some critics. So, so let's. So, the critics of, of internet advertising go for the manipulation part. Yep. This is a way of manipulating it. A diversion of attention from important social institutions, a kind of social distraction. Uh, there's some criticism around the collecting a collection of data overall, creating a, a, a vulnerable point or some kind of risk because because you will have a lot of personal data collected and it can be then abused for other purposes or you can't control how it's used for other purposes. That's that line of criticism. Let's let's turn to the positives. Um, mm. <laughs> so what what are the what, what is the benefit of internet advertising as a business model? Why mm. how how can can it be defended? Yeah, I mean, you know, the primary reason that it's chosen is because it generally produces the lowest possible bar to participation because it allows services to be offered at a price point of zero. And and if you sort of think, think back, you know, I remember they discussed this at Facebook when it was starting up, um, that you, you essentially would have three potential business models. So one potential business model is a subscription-based service. Um, and, and some people operate subscription-based services, but I, I think you have to recognize that they are exclusive and they will generally um, uh, dissuade quite large numbers of people from signing up. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a model which works for very well-established services with with premium products where they can sort of draw people in. And again, in the mainstream media space, you see subscription models are, are challenged. But that's one model, subscription model. And some people have argued, I know um, uh, that Commissioner Vestaya from the European Commission, for example, was a very strong proponent of saying she wanted to see social media go for a subscription model. So that's one. Number two is you could sell data. And you collect the data and sell it. And some people think that's what uh, social media services do, and I actually don't think that's right. That um, They're not buying the data and then selling the data. There are people who do that. There are what they call data brokers who, who literally go around and collect data uh, about individuals and sell that uh, to people who will then use it for, for business purposes. Um, so that's the sort of second model. I'm going to collect your data and I'm going to say up front, the data you give me uh, in order to get the free service, I'm going to sell on to other people as data that they can use, and you're going to consent to that. Um, that's, I think, rejected because it's quite a short-term business model in the sense that once you've sold the data, you, you know, <laughs> you've basically sold everything that's valuable, uh, and somebody else is going to use it, and they don't necessarily need to come back to your platform at all. So the third model, which is selling the attention with the intention informed by the data, i.e. the online advertising model, is the one that ended up prevailing over both subscription and selling data as such. Um, and again, that's you know you can see time and again that those services that, that allow people just to access them immediately, sign up, pay nothing, uh, you know they've got this price point of zero. That seems to be broadly acceptable to the consumer. And in many cases, you say they don't like the advertising, but if it's done well, they find it um, minimally intrusive. 
Uh, I used to have people on the way to Facebook going, how does Facebook fund itself? You go advertising. They'd say, well, I, you know, I don't see it. And it's sort of done quite unobtrusively, um, you know, when it's done really well. And so it's quite minimal for them. And in that model, you're basically getting businesses to subsidize consumers all around the world having access to your internet service. Uh, and that it seems to work. And so that's where most people have ended up and are still ending up, actually, if you're building a service today, you know, that, and you want to grow it, uh, that's often going to be your best choice. And the counter argument here that we hear a lot is when you talk about the price point of zero or when you talk about it being free is that if it is free, you are the product. That's the moniker. Yeah. That's a sort of slogan that keeps being repeated again and again. Uh, the idea then being that what is really being sold is your attention here and you are the product. What would you say to that? I mean, I think it's I think it's a deal, uh, and as long as the terms of the deal are explicit, then it's a reasonable deal. And, and again, it's not entirely novel. The deal for commercial television has been, you know, we're going to give you this TV for free as long as you'll sit through our ads every now and then. And and in some cases, certainly UK commercial TV, that used to be a very reasonable deal for a lot of people. And in, in other places, they'll kind of go over the top and there'll be too much of the advertising and it's not a great deal. But the deal that, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, show you ads in return for giving you a free service, I think is is a legitimate deal. I think there are some really valid questions about the extent to which people do understand all of the data collection and the machinery that goes on behind that. And particularly in this world where um, people are in the business know that it's called the ad tech world. And there's there's like, you know, for, for, for a particular ad to appear in front of you, there could be a dozen different parties involved in terms of bidding for the space, allocating this, all of that kind of stuff where, where you're choosing in a split second which ad to show to which individual. There are some real questions around data collection. No one to duck those. But I, I think even with all of that knowledge, and over recent years, actually, you know, a lot of people have been very um, firm in campaigning to make sure that this knowledge is in the public domain. Even with all that knowledge, I think for, for very many people, that's still a reasonable deal. So one of the benefits is that uh, through advertising, companies who want to advertise are subsidizing consumers' access to these services. And uh, yes, the consumers are paying with their data, but they also are getting the services. So the question is, is the deal fair rather than, than is this a tenable business model? But there seems to be another aspect of this as well that's interesting because not all consumers are created equally, right? There are some consumers that are more high value than others. So to a certain extent, it seems that if if you're somewhere where advertisers aren't that interested, but you're still getting these services, there's some kind of transfer going on here of value of money, some kind of, of transfer of resources going on within the advertising system. So say, for example, that there is a value of X in on a consumer in country A, and a very low value uh, of uh, Y in country B of a consumer, but both are getting the same service, the same Facebook service, the same search engine service. There's some kind of wealth transfer going on there, isn't there? Yeah, and and that's one of the aspects that's often uh, sort of not addressed when people advocate for subscription-based services. Look, the reality today is, and you, and you can see this actually in the in the public figures that these big companies put out with their, their financial results, you can see that the vast majority of their income comes from the United States and Western Europe. And yet they may have hundreds and hundreds of millions of users in other parts of the world. 
And it is the case that the advertisers in the United States and Western Europe effectively are paying for the infrastructure that delivers the service to people in the rest of the world, where if you just did a sort of strict profit and loss sheet, you know, these companies may well be loss making in a number of those markets. They've got tens of millions of users. Uh, uh, those users using the service, posting lots of content, using lots of data center space, um, but actually the advertising revenue is minimal. Now, of course, the businesses aren't doing it, you know, for, for out the, entirely out the goodness of their heart. They're hoping in future they'll have a decent business in those countries, so, so they they want those users. But if you just looked at it today and you said, look, you know, we're not we're not going to have this advertising model. We're going to make everybody pay subscriptions. Um, then you would find that people in those countries would lose access to services because they're not going to be able to afford the subscriptions um, and they're no longer getting this sort of cross-subsidy that comes from advertisers in the uh, United States and Europe. So in one, at least one scenario, one interpretation, this, adverti- this global advertising system that we're talking about is, is one of the largest wealth transfer systems uh, that we have constructed so far in our societies. Yeah, I mean, arguably in terms of the services, if you if you you know you say, look, when I plug my internet connection in, you know, let, let's figure out what the value uh, to me as a user is of having uh, uh, search, social media, uh, messaging, all of these services sort of instantly accessible at, at a price point of zero, and you you can say that's you know worth tens, if not hundreds, of dollars a month wherever you are in the world, to have those services available. Um, and you are getting them, I say, effectively at a price point of nothing. And you may be getting very, very few adverts yourself <laughs> because you're not in a, a high-value target market. Um, so it's a fascinating wealth transfer. Again, let's be candid that critics of big tech will, will have arguments to say, well, actually, that's a bad thing. You know, that, um, you know people in, in developing countries are being signed up to services that are actually harmful for them or that this is stifling the development of local services that would otherwise fill the gap. Yeah. But you know, the reality today, though, as I say, is you know, plug that phone in, in in Tanzania or Sri Lanka or wherever you are, and you are, you are getting hundreds of dollars value of services without paying anything. Hmm. So we have the the argument that this is provision of services for a low price point. We have the argument that this is some, at least, wealth transfer. If you assume that there's like some net benefit to having these services available, even where there's not a huge advertising interest. Um, is there anything else that we should think about when we think about advertising? Is there another, some other values associated with it? Yeah, I mean, I think within the within the ecosystem so the value and again tech companies do this endlessly and we will have done it both of us in our time of <laughs> you know i'm going to trot out the small business in your local area that that has yeah. had a huge benefit from advertising the platform like we trot it out it's a bit of a cliche but it's also true <laughs> like many cliches it's actually true that there are you know all sorts of uh, businesses who can only exist because they can use these new advertising tools and the example would be you know if you make a, a, a specialist product and and your market is is 10,000 people in the entire United Kingdom you do a, I know you sell you know secondhand victorian clothes which 10,000 victorian clothes <laughs> aficionados will buy Look, you know, you couldn't afford ads on mainstream British telly, which was the only way previously to reach all of, all of the people you wanted to reach. You couldn't afford, you know, full-page newspaper ads in national newspapers. 
but you can afford to go onto a platform, whether that's search or, or social media, whatever it is, and say, please find me the 10,000 people who have expressed an interest in Victorian clothing and have a pretty good chance of reaching them at reasonable cost. So again, we have to recognize, however cynical we are, but those businesses you know, would not be able to work in the way that they work uh, and not be as successful as they are without these new tools being available. And it, it seems it doesn't really matter if those Victoria, Victorian clothes aficionados are in the UK or if they're in Sweden or in Austria. So there, there is something here about these systems also being export support systems, it seems to me. Exactly. Again, you're, uh, you think of yeah that UK-based Victorian clothing business, you know, they, I've described how they would find it financially ruinous to try and reach everybody in the UK, but they're not only financially ruinous, but technically pretty much impossible to reach their, you know, 50 customers in France or 100 customers in Germany prior to the internet. They just had no way of of you know engaging with any kind of advertising platforms in those countries uh, not least because of language barriers but also just knowing who's who in the market now you go onto an internet platform you say show my ad to people in germany or france and the platform does all of it for you and so we let's recap we have this enormous debate about internet advertising there are people who say it's uh, manipulative it distracts us from socially important things it creates an enormous amount of data pools that are vulnerable to exploitation for different reasons and then we have the arguments for which is that it's actually providing a service at a very low near to zero price point it is transferring at least some wealth into other markets and it's giving small businesses a chance to be discovered and export at low cost So it seems to be a much more nuanced discussion, if you put it like that, than the kind of discussion we're having now. Why is the public sentiment and the sentiment in decision maker uh, circles so uh, so vehemently against advertising? Because you have to say that advertising is one of those things that it's really hard to find someone who likes it, <laughs> not yeah. not just in the public, but like you know, a, a, um, a policymaker to stand up for it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's partly because it's it's sort of playing to the gallery. <laughs> so if you say you're you, you don't like advertising, you want to crack down on it, that's likely to be a more popular position than trying to defend advertising. Um, but but it's also you know in the context where we haven't actually modelled out the alternatives for people. So if you say you know do you want more or less advertising the internet, people say yeah, well, less advertising the internet. If you say well, do you want to pay? you know, 50 pounds a month for your search and social media and all those services, uh, because that's what we're going to have to do uh, without the advertising. They were going, no, 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 <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to row back from that. So so we're not we're not actually fleshing out the alternative. And I think there's a bit of sort of magic money thinking, which is, I mean, internet companies are profitable. They're, they are making good money out of advertising. They could probably take a, a hit on that and, and do a little bit less advertising or have lower margins. But you can't do away with it altogether without ending up paying pretty hefty subscriptions. You know, it's not these services are like search are not cheap to deliver, and so you're going to end up with quite a lot of payment. So, as I say, it's a debate where you're being asked, "Do you want to get rid of the bad thing?" But you're not being shown <laughs> what the world will look like without that bad thing. And, and you're also, it also seems as if you're associating the bad thing with the platform when you're saying, oh, well, the internet companies is making a lot of money. But you just described these small and medium-sized enterprises who are using this. The users of the advertising platforms, their voice in the debate seems to be largely absent. That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and again, yes, if they, if they came into it, if they had to imagine the world without, 
I think, again, a lot of them would be, you know, extremely distressed and, and jobs would be at risk. I mean, there's no doubt um, you'd have to find completely different ways to run your business. Actually, my, my suspicion is that you would find there would be other ways to cut through. In other words, if you tried to kind of ban companies from advertising altogether now that we've got a global internet that's not going to work what you could do is if policymakers were minded to go that way sort of ban or limit it certain kinds of advertising on certain platforms and then that would cause new forms of marketing to pop up elsewhere so the the obvious one would be look if you if you say look we're worried about sort of ads on social media and search and stuff well, people will be starting to figure out how they can do it through messaging services, uh, maybe how they can pay people to to sort of give them contact details and stuff so that they can then create a list of people interested in Victorian clothing that, that then becomes the new sort of marketing channel. So, so they're going to find a way around it um, one way or another, I think, given that we have this globally connected internet and we have entrepreneurs who want to sell things and then you have product placement in movies and other similar things where where sort of there is there is like a demand for discovery in the economy that will in some way find its supply it seems yes that's it is is that exactly that demand for discovery that that is going to work its way through um but i think you know policymakers as i say partly it's an easy hit to go after advertising because it's sort of your instinctive reaction is you don't like it I think it's also, and we shouldn't duck this, motivated quite a lot by their own experience, which is that they are concerned that that um, uh, advertising will be used against them. And, and again, we shouldn't avoid the fact that when you're you're working in the world of policy, a lot of your reactions are going to come from your own experience. Uh, and there is this perception that, um, most notably since the 2016 election in the United States, Uh, that uh, in some ways people are able to use online advertising in the political context to buy elections. And that, again, I think is really having quite a profound impact on the debate, almost to the point where this very small amount of political advertising is colouring the debate around this much, much larger amount of commercial advertising. And and that's also interesting because wouldn't it just be easier for the platforms to ban political advertising to say yes we we understand that there is a problem here and to protect this sort of this tool for exports the small medium sized enterprises etc we're not going to allow our advertising systems to be used for these purposes yes and I, I've been involved in years of debates around this and I think um, Twitter's position up front at least is that they still do ban political advertising it was certainly d- debated at Facebook to make our lives easier to say look you know now you don't have to worry about your own uh, context but there are there are two counter arguments to that we should record so so one is uh, uh, the counter argument that you know from a practical point of view trying to define what is political advertising is a real challenge or what you know what point uh, when I don't know, um, Benetton runs an advertising campaign this week, if they did, saying, you know, buy our clothes to save the planet uh, because we've got the COP26 climate change going on. You know know how all the commercial advertisers will sort of get on the back of that. Like, is that political advertising or not? So you've got these sort of definitional questions. But more fundamentally, um, you know, advertising online is also a way in which people discover new political forces and new political ideas. And so, again, from just a democratic point of view, that instinctive reaction to say, well, we ban it, we've cleaned up or improved politics may actually turn out not not to be quite as straightforward if what you're effectively doing is removing any opportunity for uh, politicians to be discovered by people that they don't currently have a connection with, which is what advertising does. 
And that might have a particularly profound effect in countries where the mainstream media is controlled by the political establishment and where uh, alternative political forces are coming through using online advertising. So again, what seems simple uh, could end up actually dramatically tipping the balance by closing down a channel. Closing down the political advertising channel may not necessarily be neutral in its effect, even if your intent is that you're trying to act in a politically neutral way. Right. And I think there's a study from Italy, actually, from a few Italian local elections that shows that internet advertising uh, increased the uh, diversity of candidates in an interesting way. So discovering diversity is improved by advertising. Now, it seems to me that if you want to analyze this question, if you're intellectually honest and you really want to understand the question about advertising, you would do well to separate out in your head the fact that advertising is paid for and the fact that there's such a thing as a discovery mechanism. And the first thing to do would be to discover discuss the value of the discovery mechanism and then look at how the discovery mechanism is economically uh, situated, how it's economically constructed. Because if you agree that discovery is good, that discovery is a value in the economy, then you can talk about different kinds of discovery and you can talk about different kinds of advertising, but you at least agree on that basic premise that having some means of discovery in an increasingly complex economy is absolutely essential. So are there other helpful ways in which we can separate out? Because mm-hmm. advertising is, is this horrible word that has a, you know, a 75% negative approval rate. Yes. What, what, are the, what are the things that we can focus attention on to see this in a clear way? I mean, I think that framework is exactly right. And, and it's really helpful actually to go through it and say, you know, if, you, if you start with that first principle and say, do you think it is a good thing or, or not that there should be mechanisms that enable um, small businesses and potential customers to discover each other using the power of the internet. Do you agree in principle there should be a way for people to discover new political ideas and political parties to discover new supporters? These are sort of two-way relationships. And I think you're right. If we go through that list, you find that most of the things that advertising is used for I think will turn out to be things that people believe should exist. And then you do get to your second question. Again, I think help, spilling out is so helpful this way. That of, uh, you know, Are there better ways to do this? I- interestingly, in the political world, one of the counter proposals, which may yet c- come to force, is that there should be um, essentially free public service broadcasts. And, and this happens actually in the UK on other media. You're not allowed to buy political advertising. But you get an allocation of free slots on on TV uh, if you're a, a political party above a certain threshold, and so you can imagine a world where you know we've agreed that political discovery is good, but we don't want to associate it with money, uh, and so there'll actually be a regulated requirement for you to to show those uh, political ads, uh, which will allow people to discover things, but but without there being a, a financial element. Now, you're not going to extend that to the entire economy, I don't think, and have the government say, you know, internet platforms must give, you know, certain certain amount of free coverage to every business in the land. Um, so well, there and, you do and the reason for that, by the way, is that it, it would not be possible because of the enormous wealth of different commercial actors, right? So so it's not just that that it would be, uh, you know, <laughs> bad business. It's it's that at that point, you reach the, the scarcity limit of attention. There's only a, a, a sort of, there's a scarcity of attention, so need to allocate it efficiently, which means that, that you actually need some kind of mechanism to manage discovery as an asset or as a mechanism, right? 
Yes, exactly. And that's what, and so this, this way you get to the magic that I know you would have been close to at Google of uh, auctions and things that you're, yeah. you know, yeah, you're yeah. trying to. So, so I think, again, if you've, if you've accepted that discovery of new businesses is a good thing, uh, or businesses and customers discovering each other is a good thing. Um, and you're right, you have limited attention. And so you're not going to have a mandate that says, you know, every business gets one ad slot uh, a week. Um, you've got to find some other way to allocate those slots. Uh, and again, we should be clear about where those limits are. The, the limits are um, around the amount of attention you pay on the platform, but also in, in terms of some sort of screen design and tolerance that for search, if you had you know, 10 ads and one search result, that ain't going to work. You can experiment with, is it three or four ads and six or seven search results? Yeah, you balance it up. And the same with social media. Is it one ad every 10 newsfeed stories or is it one ad every five? If it was three ads in four and only one of those newsfeed stories was something you actually wanted to read, you know, you're going to, obviously not going to work. So, so you've got this limited number of slots. Uh, the platforms can dial them up or down to a certain extent, but they're going to reach a point at which you know, it becomes intolerable for their users. Now that now they've worked out their maximum uh, uh, inventory, as it's called, the inventory of ads is the number of ads I can show to people uh, every day. Then you've got to have some way of, of allocating those to the businesses that um, uh, will make best use of them. And the way in which that's done is is through an auction principle that that tries to uh, define. It's not just cost, actually. Very interesting, and I'm sure you you dug into this. It's, cost is quite uh, uh, a significant element of it. Obviously, the platforms want to sell to people who will pay the most for that attention, um, but they do also factor in other things around relevance of the ads, acceptability of the ads, quality of the ads, uh, because they want to make sure that the the user experience also remains good. Yeah, the auction is clearing several sides of the transaction, as you point out, and I think that's one of the one of the things that recommends it that that it sort of doesn't just look at price, but it actually looks at a, a portfolio of different values that it's and that are being maximized. And so, I, I think that's right. And I think that so it's it's interesting because there's one thing that we haven't mentioned yet. We have talked about the exports, we have talked about the the sort of discovery, etc., of, of small businesses, but there's also advertising actually also opens up for innovation for entirely new businesses to come online. Mm. So one large field, uh, paradoxically perhaps, that has opened up is the uh, field of internet journalism that is wholly funded by by advertising in different forms and shapes. And so there, there, is, there is something really interesting going on here where the same advertising that's being accused of creating social distraction also creates social innovation in a really interesting way. What happened? What is happening here? Yeah, so I mean, again, in in some of these policy debates, where normally you'll find the mainstream media sort of pitted firmly against the internet companies, the internet companies have, have stolen their lunch because they've they've stolen the attention, and and you know the internet company or the mainstream media companies, you know, sometimes are struggling because they haven't got uh, uh, actually they, they sort of get the attention, but the the advertisers you know, are finding uh, that the, the, the internet models sort of work better for them. Um, but, but a lot of them have turned to internet properties. Some have turned to subscription. They've made actually very similar choices to the internet companies. Some have turned to subscription. Others are going for eyeballs and are, are using the ad products, including ad products from those mainstream tech companies. And often in these policy debates, they will be lobbying against restrictions on their ability to use advertising for their, their services. Again, we should be clear that if you're running a very uh, specialist publication, 
then it may be that you don't need targeted advertising because it's already targeted by virtue of your publication. So, if, and again, this worked in the world of magazines the same way. If you if your you know your website is uh, fisherman's monthly website, just as it used to be fish, fisherman or fisher person's monthly uh, magazine in the old days. Uh, and then you take banner ads that you're going to show to everybody for products related to fishing. You're probably, you know, not far off what you wanted to target anyway. But if you're a well, main, I, I'd actually take issue with that and say that you know, one of the most important personalization is often interpreted hmm. as something that you do in order to really target an individual. But what you're really trying to do is to increase relevance. And for a large part of, for example, search advertising, the single most relevant piece of data you can have is roughly what country you're in. So if you're running yes. a fisherman's website and you want to have ads for where you can buy good fishing gear and you have an international audience, it's going to be less helpful if that's in Sheffield and if you're in Stockholm. So at some point, even there, slight targeting. Not yes, you're like right. You've corrected me. Yes, probably, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. It's, if it was Sheffield Fisher Persons Monthly, <laughs> you're yes. right, it would be simpler. <laughs> but, but you're right. Once you've gone to sort of global Fisher Persons Monthly, then then you're going to want some targeting as well. But but the point being, though, that you, you know, fishing-related ads on a fishing-dedicated site are fine. Once yeah. you move to like a general news site, like if you're running a newspaper website, then you know what what ads are you going to show people like you, you just don't know and and banner ads again showing the same ad to every visitor to your website is back to that very old very wasteful model uh, and so much better if you're running any kind of publication uh, to to be showing if it's a general news publication or a general interest publication much better to be using a targeted ad tool and actually, you see this across um, blogs. They're a classic example where, again, they, they have a certain amount of attention. Uh, they could try and sell it themselves, and just put stuff on there and charge people for it. But what they mostly do is use services like the ones offered like by people like Google and Facebook, which are those ads that follow you around the internet. Um, but the reason for that is because, you know, that blog doesn't know what ad is most likely to be interesting to you. If they effectively rent out the bit of attention of yours that they've got and and rent that out to a, a global advertising company that knows about you and knows what you're interested in, it's a higher value ad placement. That blog actually gets more money than they would do by doing it themselves. And so again, the economics is, is driving a lot of this so that these uh, independent websites and independent blogs, general purpose ones, many of them will sign up to the same global advertising services uh, that are offered by the big tech platforms. So let's let's sort of round this out with a bit of a craft segment as well. You know, we have occasionally in these podcasts a section where we talk a little bit about so what should be done. And and uh, in this particular case if you're working um, in a business that in some way wants to support advertising, you're faced with this really horrible dilemma that there's no way that you can just run a generic campaign saying advertising is good because yeah. you know from the outset that that's a losing proposition. I know we had discussions like this. What can we do to rehabilitate advertising as a both as a business model or as a practice and it just it's just really very hard because there is this public sentiment that you run into even though people use it even though it's useful even it has all of the advantages and and fairly you know the disadvantages that we discussed so so how can you from a policy perspective uh improve the overall perception or standing of advertising what are the what are the things you should be doing yeah, I, again, I think this is really hard when you're dealing with something that's unpopular. Because you're right, if you if you try and argue advertising is good, you're not going to get 
very far. And I certainly sort of, I mean, we, we've made those arguments a little bit in the podcast today of these are all the benefits of advertising. Like you may feel that, but I don't think it's going to help you. Equally, I think sort of playing to the audience of, well, we know advertising is is terrible, but all the alternatives are much worse. It is a sort of quite a negative. <laughs> it's not uh, a great campaign. Argument to be using it again. Who's my I'm, candidate? Because all of the others suck. <laughs> yeah, and again, I've done that a bit in this. You know, we've done it a bit in this podcast of like you know, developing countries will be cut off and only the rich will survive. You know, so we're yeah. a little bit of that. I think there's something so more constructive in the middle, which is to say, you know, how do we make this thing work well? Which is a necessary thing. Uh, uh, you know, we're not going to. We're actually going to sort of step away from the moral value judgments about advertising because those aren't really helpful. Um, and we're instead we're just going to talk about the practical ways of making advertising work well. And there are some. I mean, the UK has a really interesting example of a thing called the Advertising Standards Authority, which deals with one one very important aspect, which is the quality of ads and actually has authority over online ads in the UK. So if you don't like one, if you think it's misleading, you can go to these people, Advertising Standards Authority, and they'll investigate. And if they think it's misleading, they'll they'll tell the platform not to show that ad anymore. And that's an interesting entity. It's it's um, a, a, a genuine co-regulatory body, as in there's something in British law that says the the regulator, Ofcom, our telecoms regulator, will effectively subcontract with these people to make sure the advertising works well. And if that doesn't have the desired effect, then you know there's a legislative hook to kind of bring it fully into in-house into the kind of regulated framework. So I think really focusing on that kind of practical way and saying saying, you know, in the policy debate, look, if we can come up with a advertising system which is is um, uh, properly policed by people like these advertising standards authorities. And again, maybe uh, something similar for the data side of things. We have data protection uh, regulators who, who would have an interest in that. Uh, uh, how do we make a, a sort of uh, as good as it can be robust, effective advertising system that maximizes the benefits uh, to industry and consumers for free services and minimizes the risk of data abuse, misleading ads, uh, manipulation? So that's the way I would sort of go. I say is is try and avoid these sort of um, utopian, dystopian. Advertising is wonderful. Advertising is a disaster. Ends of the spectrum, and go for the very practical. What kind of advertising model should we have? What kind of framework should we have to make it as good as possible? And I think that's exactly right. And f- focusing on function and quality is yeah. is the way forward if you want to make this work. And it's it's interesting. One of the one of the uh, most successful projects in in that respect is one that has both News Corp and Google on its board. It's the Coalition for Better Ads. Uh, my Facebook is a member of the board as well. And it's 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 one of those things where I think that uh, if you really want to make the point that advertising should be allowed as a business model and that it should continue to exist, you can't argue for advertising, but you can argue for improved functionality and for much better quality. And in a sense, I think that allows you then indirectly to make the point that there is a value in discovery, which is ultimately where if you were having this discussion in a more academic setting where you have time to make both two and three arguments and not just yes. sort of have a, a, a talking point, I think what you would get to then is to really show how this value of discovery is increasing enormously with the complexity of the economy and the global reach that most companies have from the very outset today. So that seems to be seems to be the, the way to go. Um, and, uh, and not necessarily printing 
making T-shirts that said "Ads are great." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> might not might not be the most efficient way. Um, excellent. The the last question on my side is is what's your favorite ad? Oh, that's a uh, good one. So so actually. Um, uh, I know, I don't know about you, but I watch very little linear television. Uh, uh, but I used to watch um, quite a lot of linear television in the old days. And I actually, and this may be little England and in the post-Brexit, we are the best at everything. But I actually think British TV ads were some that were world-leading. Uh, and, and my favorite, there was a cause beer ad, which I think now appears on YouTube, which has, I think it's Jean-Claude Van Damme, but someone will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sort of out in the snows getting frozen. And it has a kind of slightly naughty, you know, double entendre humor to it. Um, I'm going to go <laughs> and search for it in a minute, but I'm pretty certain. We're going to put it in the show notes. Yeah, so yeah, you can get it. Yeah, yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme in the snow, Jean-Claude Van Damme in the snow uh, is the one that really made me laugh the most in recent years. Yes, perfect. And you? Do you have one? Oh yes, there, there's one for a salmon that I really like. Uh, that's an old ad, really old, and and you know my kids will sigh when I mention this. But it's an ad where where there's like it starts with this nature of photography. Is that the beer is at the edge of the flood, looking <laughs> for the salmon, and then he catches the salmon, and this guy from the salmon company runs up to the bear and starts fighting the bear for the salmon because they want the freshest salmon, and it sort of it then turns into a karate fight between the beer and it's just very realistically done and superb so i really i really like that because it was so surprising when they shifted from the nature photography framework into this this absurd uh, karate fight between the bear and the man from the salmon company <laughs> so i'll add that in the show notes as well but this this can be found on your website which is www.regulate.tech and as always, thank you for listening. Um, and we'll make a small advertisement for our next episode. Please do join us for our next episode. That will be about something else and advertising. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>